0: Our passage today is definitely one that uh, if I wasn't an expository preacher, I'm fairly sure I'd never get to. <laughs> if I wasn't preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly sure it might be tucked away somewhere in a Wednesday night service <laughs> or a Sunday night service so that we didn't have to deal with it. I'll be perfectly honest, it is a uh, difficult issue uh, passage. Even as we read through it, you probably have said, Whoa, this is interesting. Uh, How does that work? Uh, This is one of the passages that's often used by critics to uh, uh, slam the Bible. Um, Yet, as we go through this passage, I think you're going to be very encouraged. It is a spectacular masterpiece of logic that Christ uses to call the people to think differently. As we're making our way through the Gospel of Luke, we are finding that Jesus is a master teacher, isn't he? Everywhere he went, he speaks directly to the people with logic, clarity, wisdom. And he was that master, commun- master communicator. He spoke in word pictures so that people would understand him. He spoke with logic that drew the audience into the sermon and then he would turn the light on of God's righteousness, and convict them and encourage them to repent and turn to Him. Today we're going to see Jesus uses this illustration that many have misunderstood and chastised Him for, but it's an extremely effective way of communicating. He shows once again that if we misinterpret or read more into a parable than Jesus means, we could totally miss His point. Tell you what, parables are very important, and I was talking to Kim a little bit about this before the service. You, you guys just don't realize how hard it is to do what she's doing and what God is gifting these interpreters to do. Uh, it is an amazing thing because I am telling a picture story, giving the explanation, and she's using picture language to talk about a picture story. And that is just, you've got to sit home, go home, and think about using pictures to tell a picture story. And you're going to start seeing, whoa, this is confusing. It is very hard. And this one, we're going to be jumping back and forth. It's an amazing, an amazing story. But communication, God uses it to help us to learn from Him. So we're going to jump in and dive into this passage. Again, parables were given usually with one main theme. One main theme. And that's what you want to focus in on. What is that one main theme he's trying to get across? It is very, very important that we don't read more into this parable, especially. If we read more into this one, we're going to miss a lot. So, as we heard this parable today, as Ryan was reading it, the overall message Jesus is getting across is, Be like the unrighteous steward. Get that? Be like the unrighteous steward. Apply that to you. Be like the unrighteous steward. What? That's his message for you. Did you get it? Be like the unrighteous steward. You got it? If you don't understand, you could be in a lot of trouble, huh? <laughs> Better get it, huh? What in the world is he talking about here? In verse 8 where it says he praised, the master praised him for his shrewdness. We'll talk about this, that he acted shrewdly. This unrighteous steward, it's important. There's only one main aspect that you have to focus on and be like. (laughs) There's only one, and it's a non-moral aspect. A non-moral thing that you're supposed to follow him in. A non-moral thing. Now this is really strange. He's telling us to do a... He's taking a non-moral concept. Because if we say, be like the unrighteous steward, everything that an unrighteous person does is what? Evil. Evil. Everybody that's unsaved is evil to the core. And everything they do is evil. This is a... Non-moral concept that the unrighteous servant has to do. So we have to figure out, what in the world is he talking about? we got to get in and dig in. Let's look. Wow. One single non-moral component of this man's life in this story is what we're supposed to follow. Again, because Jesus uses the unrighteous person for his illustration... The tendency is to misunderstand what Jesus is saying. Is Jesus saying, be unrighteous like the unrighteous steward? No, that's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying, respond appropriately to our future perspective like the unrighteous steward did. Now I'll explain it as we go along. Behave appropriately knowing what is coming. That's what you're supposed to do. Behave appropriately based on what you know is coming. Act like we should with an eye on eternity. If you know what's going to happen in the future, act, behave like you know what's going to happen. That's the point he's getting at. That's the only point he's getting at. That's the main focus. That's what you got to centralize in on. Now what's really interesting is he gives a big backhanded slam to the Pharisees while he's doing it. Because by verse 14, the Pharisees get all, they're all beside themselves. So at the same time, he's setting them up in their self righteousness, but he's calling the disciples to do one main thing. In light of what you know about eternity, respond appropriately. That's what he's t- saying. Jesus used bad people other times in Scripture, in parables. Matter of fact, when we get into Luke 18, we'll have another one where there's an evil judge. And he uses that evil judge as an example, an unjust judge. So this parable is similar to that one in that he uses an unrighteous person to make his point that we all must have our eyes on the future and respond accordingly based on what we know is coming. This is another, also, a money illustration that Jesus uses. It's common for Jesus to use money and possessions as illustrations. He often did it. Now, unlike the uh, name it and claim it group that's out there now, they use money to make you feel like you could get rich at church. He usually used his money and used these illustration points to make a bigger point, and that is that that stuff doesn't matter. (laughs) But he often used it. He often used talents and money and possessions, and we'll see it. Over and over. We saw it in Lost Coin in Luke 15 in the prodigal son and how he squandered his wealth and all these things. Matthew 25, the parable of the talents, all of these are based on possessions. Let's look at our passage though. Today we're going to see followers of Jesus must respond appropriately to what we know is coming. Followers of Jesus must respond appropriately to what we know is coming. So, as you follow along in your notes, this passage breaks down into two main sections. The first section is the parable with a point. That's verses 1 to 8. The parable with a point. That's one point. Very important. The parable with a point, 1 through 8. And then second, the application for the disciples. The application for the disciples. It's found in 9 through 13. The application... For the disciples to behave right in light of their right understanding of what's coming in the future. Alright, so let's start with this first section. The parable with a point. Notice, he gives the uh, the audience for listening to this parable. In verse 1, it says, Luke gives us, Now he was also saying to his disciples, These are the followers of Christ. Now the and in, in, in verse 14, we don't have that up on the PowerPoint, but you know, now the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening all to all these things and were scoffing at Him. So you have two groups in the audience. What are the two groups? The disciples and the Pharisees. those That's what makes up the audience. The disciples were the followers of Christ. These were the ones who had made a commitment to Christ, who were seeking to be a student. They were probably... On the scene in the previous chapter, but it appears now Jesus is directing his attention away from the Pharisees and onto them. And he's teaching them directly. And then there's those Pharisees again. They're around. While Jesus addresses his disciples, as we see from this passage, the Pharisees were listening in, seeking to catch him, and getting angry. The more he talked, the angrier they got. In fact, it's interesting to me. That he uses an unrighteous steward, and in the description of the unrighteous steward, you can just know that the Pharisees would have been promoted and provoked in their own self-righteousness. They would have judged the guy so bad. So when it gets to the punchline in verse 8, they missed the whole point because of their self-righteousness. They would not have gotten it. They would have been so enamored with themselves, I doubt they would have gotten this parable. But I think that's why he addresses it directly to the disciples. This is only the the ones that are followers of Christ that can really grab this and get this. The self-righteous ones can't get past the unrighteous servant. Can't get past the unrighteous steward. How in the world? This guy's horrible. And so when he starts making application, it's just like a big fist punch for the Pharisees. So he has a mixed audience. But primarily, he intends for the disciples to hear it. And in light of this fact, many of us in here who are followers of Christ, this passage is for us. There's some grace here for us. And we need to know it. And we need to think on it. And we need to apply it to our hearts by God's grace. So I would strongly advise you all to take these words seriously. Second, notice the characters of the parable. The characters of the parable. In verse 1 it says... There was a rich man who had a manager, or you could call a manager steward. The owner is the rich man. As we will see, he is very, very wealthy, as presented by Jesus in this story. Whether we should associate with the rich man God, whether we should say, okay, are they supposed to be compared to each other, the rich man and God, or not, I don't think we were even supposed to go there. Now, I know this is not normal, because often in parables you have a direct correlation, but I don't think he's really trying to make that point. I don't know if he's saying, I'm directly supposed to be compared. He's making one main point in this parable, and that's all. Jesus is trying to direct, direct the attention of the disciples to think like the unrighteous steward in one aspect of his life. That's it. Think like him. And respond appropriately. The rich man does not protect his own wealth, right? That's nothing like God. When he allows the steward to go and approach his debtors with the the owner's knowledge, without the owner's knowledge. Think about this. No way would God be this unwise, right? As this rich man, what are you doing? You fire a guy and you let him go collect the money and get all the uh, books together? No, you walk him to the desk. (laughs) You give him, okay, I'm watching you. Write down what you're owed. (laughs) You don't go to each spot. So I think we have to be very careful of saying, okay, there's a direct correlation. Again, I don't think Jesus is given a perfect one-for-one association here. Second, the steward or the manager. The NASB uses the word manager, but I kind of like that word steward better because it, it gives a picture the word steward clearly reveals the idea of a person that has rule over something that is not his own. It's not his own stuff, but he's the steward of it. The word obviously is related to stewardship, right? The steward, A steward is defined by Noah Webster as a superintendent of others' servants, their rent, or a keeper of accounts. In other words, it's somebody that... Doesn't own it himself, he's just watching over it. And it is so important that once he gets to the application section, it's perfect for application for us, being a good steward of what God has given us. We'll see in a little bit. Webster says it's, in the Bible, this word steward has the concept of a minister of Christ whose duty is to dispense the provisions of the gospel. Did you hear that? It's his duty to dispense the provisions of the gospel. That's what Noah Webster says. It's not his duty is to get rich and have lots of money and be wealthy like other stewards and this steward and be careful with money. It's to dispense the provisions of the gospel. And we'll talk about that as we get along. This word fits well in its context, the steward. This man was a superintendent or steward of the rich man's possessions. Notice third, the unrighteousness of the steward. We see it in verse 1. It says, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. I have a question for you. Where have we heard that word squandering before? How about last chapter, right? Prodigal son. The prodigal son squandered his inheritance. This word is basically means loose living, spending it frivolous. Doesn't make sense, doing whatever he wants. Fresh off the parable of the prodigal son, it's the same word, and so here we see another one of those sinners of the worst kind, those that squandered their possessions. He was squandering his owner's possessions, and Jesus paints this picture of a pretty evil manager, as we see. It squandering means to waste or to scatter or to disperse frivolously. Same word used of how, like I said, the son squandered his youth. You know, in our time, ladies and gentlemen, we would understand we understand very well what a uh, what a person that squanders wealth is all about. Huh? We have this in the news all the time, uh, especially the corporate execs that are getting busted all the time of squandering all the money and loose living, right? That stuff's coming out all the time. Or even government officials that are just squandering money. The parable here is definitely a story that our culture can relate with. We get this guy, don't we? Somebody that's, You got somebody that's an employee for you, and all he does is waste everything. Right? This is what this guy was like. This is typical of our day, isn't it? This is exactly, so we can relate, can't we? This is a cross-cultural parable for sure. It fits, doesn't it? Especially ours. Again, these execs that are doing this—this this is just what they're like. The executives. We see this in this story—an accurate look into the wickedness of man's heart. Does that shock you when you see a guy like that guy that in Enron that steals all that money? No, it doesn't shock me. It shouldn't shock you either. It shouldn't. Bosses, anybody that has people working underneath you—if you—if you think that they're going to be good and they're going to take care of your money and they're going to be diligent, <laughs> you don't know the heart of humans. This is what human hearts are like—they squander. That's what we are, apart from God's grace. Y'all, uh, y'all aren't anything like that. When you go to work, you always work diligently, right? Because you're. Time is their time and you're working for your boss. So you don't you're nothing like this, right? That was tongue in cheek there. Be careful not to squander your employer's time and money. Folks, it's very important that we are wicked just like this man, and, and that's why people need to be policed. <laughs> integrity in the workplace is very much non-existent in our day and time just a side note again this is who you are apart from the grace of god so the story makes sense so far doesn't it you got you're getting it as we're going down through we see a rich man and we got this guy that's just squandering everything he's unrighteous he's horrible steward right makes sense that's that's just like our day next we see The just response of the master. Everything's really fitting in this parable. All the way up to this point, no problem, I got it. Because look, what happens? He called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The owner's question carries with it a call to evaluate your behavior his behavior has become known to others and the whistleblower has stepped up and told on him and told of what this guy is doing or at least one maybe more jesus states the report the reports are coming in constantly to the owner in other words this guy is so bad that it's coming in all the time he's squandering it all the time this literally means and 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 when the owner says Give back the account of your stewardship. He's saying, okay, give me my stuff back. Give me the paperwork that's associated with it. What does it mean? You're fired. In the words of Donald Trump, you're fired. That's over. You're gone. You're out of here. That's what he's telling him. In essence, because of the reaction of the unrighteous steward, we know that for sure... He's fired. It's over. You are relieved of your duties of being a steward over my possessions because of your squandering of my possessions. You are not employed by me anymore. Clean out your desk, turn in your computer, and leave the building. Today's world, when an unrighteous employee is caught in a corruption, he goes directly to the paper shredder and starts shredding all the evidence of his corruption. Right? Isn't that true? So in our world today, we've kind of maybe wised up a little bit, at least some of us, and the owners escort their people out of the building immediately. (laughs) They take possession of their computer and they do not let them have it anymore because they will steal everything from you if you don't. Jesus is saying here, though, the owner just let them go. Go get your paperwork and come back. Whoa. So, he's in a bad spot, isn't he? This unrighteous steward is basically caught red handed and he's fired. He's in trouble. So, what's the steward do? Look at verse 16 3 The calculations of the steward. The manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. The steward is feeling the full weight of his circumstances, isn't he? He's getting it. I'm in trouble. He knows his limitations. He's weak. He's like me. Can't <laughs> you notice my hands are really soft. <laughs> I don't use my hands much. Compare them with my brother, that's the laborer, me and him. Yeah. He's not that kind of guy. Right? So he's not ready. He uses his mouth to make his money. And he's in trouble. Right On top of that, he's a prideful dude. <laughs> I'm never going to get out there and beg. <laughs> no way would I stoop that low. Not strong enough to dig dishes and too proud to beg. The steward <laughs> recognizes his predicament, doesn't he? He's like, I'm in trouble. <laughs> oh, no. Bad is coming upon me. I'm caught. I'm exposed. I'm going to be un- unemployed soon and I'm going to starve to death. By the way, this is the first thing we must all copy in the steward. You say what? It's a recognition. It's a recognition of where we're headed. A recognition of where we're headed. We all need to know where we're going. What's in front of us? Now that does not mean, I'm not going into this thing, and mystical thing. I want you to figure out the uh, decreed will of God for your life. I'm not saying that. What I'm talking about is, is what is your eternal destiny? Where are you going to end up? This is where the unrighteous steward says, wait, let me step back a second. I'm in trouble. Help me. I really need to calculate a way out of this jam. Every one of us in this room needs to think like that. All of us should stop and think in our minds, oh, where am I going? What am I going to face in the future? This we should emulate. This is part of his shrewdness that we'll talk about in a second. He's calculating. He's thinking on. Listen, folks, to calculate where you're headed is a good thing. We need to evaluate what is ultimately coming upon us. Now, I'm not talking about trying to figure out again God's decreed will or hidden will who I will marry, or how many kids I'll have, or, you know, those kind of things, or what day I'll die. It's not our job to try to figure those things out. But we do need to calculate and realize what's coming in our life. The things revealed in God's Word tell us what's coming for each one of us. Did you hear me? The things that are revealed in God's Word tell us what's coming for each one of us in this room. And we better calculate... What we're going to get that he says we're going to get. What are you going to get in the future? That's what we should all stop and think on. What are you going to get? For example, if there's someone here who is like the unrighteous steward in the story, who is squandering someone else's stuff, or worse, just flat out stealing things. What do you need to do? Well, you better calculate where you're going. Let me tell you where you're going. And I'm not talking about jail. I'm talking about hell. You understand? If your life direction is a thief, then where you're going is where? Hell. If your life direction is adultery, if that's what your life direction is, guess where you're headed? hell calculate that recognize where you're headed that's what this guy did he stopped whoa took in the information i'm thinking where am i going that's what we all need to do or maybe there's someone here that is living for themselves just and not committed to christ and you know it well obviously you've got a scary future don't you If you're a believer, where are you headed? If your life direction is to serve Christ, where are you going? Where is your home? It's not here. That evaluation and that calculation determines all that you do. Now, this is very important. What you're thinking about where you're going drives what you do later in life and what you do the next day. What you're thinking about your future will determine what you do tomorrow. Do you understand me? That's what he's saying here. Calculate where you're going. And then respond appropriately. The unrighteous steward saw his circumstances. And calculated his future. And then did what? Took action. Based on his calculations. That's what Jesus is commending this guy for. Notice. Notice. Recognize his plan, the solution for the steward in verses four through seven. Look at this. I know what I shall do, so that when I'm removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. Verse 5. And he summed each one of his masters, or summoned each one of his master's debtors. And he began saying to the first. How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill. Sit down quickly. Write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill. Write eighty. So what does this unrighteous steward say in effect? He says in verse four, I need some friends in the future. I'm in trouble. (laughs) I'm going to be unemployed and I need some friends. I need to calculate. Okay, how am I going to get food on the table? I need some friends. He calculated, didn't he? He thought, hmm, I'm going there. I got an idea. I got a perfect idea. I'm going to call all these people together. I'm going to summon all the people as I'm getting my accounts ready. And I'm just going to have them. I'm going to make them like me. And the way I'm going to make them like me is I'm just going to steal from my boss, but that doesn't matter because I'm just trying to protect my hide. And so what's he do? He summons the one guy in with the oil. And this is a lot of oil, folks. You understand, this is a huge, huge grove. Of olive trees. This is the equivalent of 800 gallons of oil. This is three years' salary for an average person. And he basically cuts it in half. <laughs> Says, okay, you now only owe half of that. I just saved that guy a year and a half's worth of salary. What's that guy going? Yeah, I like you, and <laughs> you're cool. <laughs> Come back to my house anytime. I will be here for you. <laughs> then he takes the next guy with the wheat, a wheat debtor. He only gives him a 20% cut, but because of inflation, that might have actually worked, or the way that uh, uh, appreciation and wheat and stuff, it might have worked out about the same, a half cut, uh, or the same amount of money. It's definitely what? A clever crook. Is he not a clever crook? I mean, he's just protecting his hide. I'm clever here. Now, why did he do it? Why did he do it? Because he knew he was in trouble. And so he took action, calculated and took action based on what he knew he was going to face. Correct? All right. Then comes the tricky spot, verse 8, verse 8, oh man, when you read it, the first hundred times I read it, yes, hundred, <laughs> read it a lot, that's why I was thanking the Lord that in his providence he had you announced last week, I got an extra week on this sermon, that's a good thing, I needed it. Notice verse 8 it says and his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly for the sons of light are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons or the sons excuse me ah, the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light In verse 8 the master praises the unrighteous steward Oh my now, commentaries, commentators argue on this. And some argue, oh, no, 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 no. This guy had overcharged, and now he goes back and takes off the overcharge that he had given him so that they would like him, but he really wasn't doing anything bad in what he did, going back and cutting it in half and giving him 80-20 on the wheat guy. No. I, I mean, I think that's just trying to get around it. I, I think you're just getting, you're trying to get around it because you don't like it. But the reality is this. Even in Luke's account, in Jesus' account, he says, and his master praised the unrighteous manager. It's almost like he made sure that you know, now this guy's unrighteous. He's an unrighteous steward. But you know, it really doesn't have to be that complicated if you just read your Bible. Because there's like a Q word that's just like screaming at you. When you study your Bible, you should look for these Q words that scream at you. One of them. You ready? Right there. It's because. Because it's important, right? He praised him. Why? Because what? Because he acted shrewdly. Because he acted shrewdly. Now, is act acting shrewdly trick, trick, listen, listen is that bad or good morally? Acting shrewdly. It is bad if if our definition of shrewd is not the definition of the Greek word that's behind this. See, here's the problem. The word shrewd has in it The idea of a moral component of trickery, craftiness. The problem is is that that's not what he's getting at. He's talking about he acted based on what he was thinking. He was acting. He praised him for acting based on what you knew was coming. That's it. What you understand about things and acting on it. That's what he was praising him for. That's so important, ladies and gentlemen. That's all he's praising him for. He's not saying, thanks for stealing my money. <laughs> Yay, you're a good thief. <laughs> no. He's saying, wow. <laughs> wow. You thought about what's coming and you acted. That's what he's saying. You thought about what's coming and you acted that's where he's leaving it. There's no moral component to that. That's how you can have an unrighteous person do something that Jesus actually condones. Did you get that? That's a very hard concept, but I want you to... Are you getting it? Is everybody understanding what I'm saying here? Shake your head no. And If you say no, I'll talk to you afterwards. <laughs> you get it? He, he saw what was coming, and he then what? Acted to protect himself. I know what's coming. I'm going to act. You calculated things. A mindset or a way of thinking that has an eye on the future is a good thing. A mindset or a way of thinking that has an eye on the future is a good thing. It's called survival instinct, I guess you could say. The steward did whatever necessary to protect himself. And this is what the owner praised. Hey, you thought and you acted. Not for stealing his stuff, but because he calculated his situation and then moved on it. It's interesting, this same word right here, uh, the same root word for shrewd, is mentioned in Matthew ten sixteen. Did you know that Jesus commands you to be this way? He says this, you ready? Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be shrewd as serpents. And innocent as doves. Now what's he telling them? Be shrewd. Be trickery. Get them. Stab them in the back. No, no, that's not what he's getting at. He's saying, look. Look into the future. See what's coming. Act like the snake that knows, ooh, better not go there. Ooh, I'm going to get in trouble over there. Ooh, I'm going to go this way. Do you understand? Be calculated and respond appropriately. Yet gentle. In the way that you deal with people. In effect, we should all contemplate what's com- coming and respond appropriately. There you go. That's the summary. You ready? That's the message. That's the message of the parable. Contemplate what's coming and then act appropriately. That's what you all should do. Okay? And that's what he says. For the sons of this age are more contemplative and responsive in relation to their own kind in summons of light. Man, folks, you get this? This is very interesting. What it says is, is that, in effect, the wicked in this world, the wicked in this world, they think and calculate and respond a lot better than we do. They do it a lot more than us. We walk around like this, I'm going to heaven, this is good, here's some money, here's some money, you know, I'm not supposed to have this money, get rid of this money, I don't need money, hey, I don't need anything. We overreact, and we've missed it. We're not contemplating the future. And acting accordingly. We're not thinking on properly and responding appropriately. They do a lot better job at us. At at being shrewd. That part. The good part of shrewd. Again, the right definition. Not the negative part of that word. They're more shrewd. Now Jesus begins to give some applications. Let's make some applications for this. Okay, so how should we know it's coming and then act appropriately? Jesus starts to give them. He gives lessons. He gives three applications. The application for the disciples. They're very simple. They're not complicated. Look at verse 9. We must be or we must all be about the ma- uh, the ministry of reconciliation. But well, we must be all about the ministry of reconciliation. We must be all about the ministry of reconciliation. In verse 9, he says, And I say to you, Now Jesus is making an application, right? I say to you, Make friends for yourself by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now again, at this point, y'all are probably going, Wait a second now. Should use unrighteous wealth to make friends. Does that mean I should go steal some money and help out some people so they will like me? No, that's not what he's talking about. The wealth of unrighteousness could be translated this way, worldly wealth. It's the idea, it's not saying go out and make wealth by unrighteous means. It's saying, in effect, all money and possessions and things of this world to a degree are contaminated by the world. This wealth is contaminated by the world. Do you understand? The money that you have to a degree is contaminated by the world. How many of you are taking your money with you when you die? Don't raise your hand. You ain't taking none of it with you. Do you understand that? You put millions of dollars down into that tomb... And they will be millions of dollars for a grave robber to come and get rich. (laughs) A hundred years from now or whatever, you are not taking any of it with you because it's a part of this world and it's going away. It's the worldly wealth, the wealth of unrighteousness. So, what's he saying? Make friends with the stuff you got here, the wealth you have here. And what kind of friends is he talking about? Well, he's not talking about just worldly friends. Talking about eternal friends. Notice that they will receive you into eternal dwellings. What's that? Eternal dwellings? It's not here, that's heaven. So what do you do with that? What? Very simple. Calculate where you're going. Know what's coming, what's coming for us believers. Eternity in heaven. So what should we be about? Calculate where you're going. What should you be about? Making friends with what you got. What are the friends? I think it's he's referencing a reconciled relationship with God. People that know God. And those will be the ones that will be in heaven. And they will receive you. They will be there. Now, we could say, well, is this God? That's the they, a part of the group that will be in there? Well, I, I think we we might be stepping past what he's saying here. I think he's just saying use your money for the proclamation of the gospel. Use what you have for God's word to go out. Do you understand that as a believer? That's why you have your money. Your money is not for yourself. Your money is for the proclamation of the gospel. Why do you work? I know because I got to put food on my table. Yeah. Yeah, but ultimately, why do you work? Ultimately, you should work to give. You work to give. That's what Paul says in Ephesians, you listen, don't steal, instead get work with your hands so that you can have money to give. The purpose of you doing this is to give. And, and just take note here. This is not... You can you know I don't have an agenda because I told you I'd skip this passage. But you should be giving. Because after all, it's about the proclamation of the gospel. That's all you want. That's the main thing, right? Believers, you know where you're going? You want more friends, don't you? I want more people to know Christ. So be about the proclamation of gospel through what you give. Use your assets for that. And that can include your house. Why do you own a house? Hopefully it's for the proclamation of the gospel. To edify the believer and evangelize the lost. Everything you own is for the gospel. It's for Christ. Have an eternal perspective and then it's all his and then you give it. Because you know what's coming. You're calculated. You know, whoa, oh yeah, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to heaven. So then act on it. We say, we're going to heaven, we're going to heaven, so let me buy worldly stuff. Do you see how that's not shrewd? That's foolish. That's you saying, I'm going to bury my head in the sand and say, I'm not really going to heaven. What's really important is stuff here. Do you get this, folks? Do you understand? It's not about this stuff about making friends, people being reconciled to God and to you, brothers and sisters in the Lord who will worship and glorify God forever. We must give generously to promotion for, to the promotion of the glory of Jesus Christ. Hey it comes perfectly right off after the idea of two missionaries last week coming up and talking to us, right? Perfect timing. That's the proclamation of the gospel around the world. That's what our church should be about, right? That's what your life should be about, right? Yes. Thank you. Amen. Well, that's what acting like the unrighteous steward's shrewdness is. That aspect. Notice the second application. We must be trustworthy with God's possessions. Okay, here we go. Sixteen, ten to 12. It says... He who is faithful or trustworthy in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have been faithful or trustworthy in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, Who will give you that which is your own? Now, I want you to notice two crucial points of this section. What is the tense of this here? Who will entrust? What is that? Future tense, right? Who will give you? What's that? Future tense, right? Now, I want you to look at this. It's beautiful. It's just like the parable. What happens is as he says, look, what you do with now has effect in the future. So contemplate. Contemplate the future and act appropriately. What you have in your wallet is whose? God's. So act appropriately in light of the future that's coming. That's what he's getting at. What you own is not your own anymore. If you're a believer, right? So what do you do? Act appropriately. It's not your money. It's his. Now be a good steward. This was a smack for me because I don't know about you guys. We have this common discussion in our household. I'm the spender and she's the saver. Y'all know what I'm talking about? By the way, it's much better to be the saver than it is to be the spender, even though I am definitely the spender. The spender uses this excuse often. Oh, well, you know, it's it's, it's just money. It's just money. It's not that big of a deal. Come on, just Come on, chocolate shake, no big deal. It's four dollars. It's all right. It's just money. It's unrighteous wealth. <laughs> no, it's God's money. Do I spend based on my wrong understanding of eternity? Yeah, you know, I'm not sitting there in that hotel room with the guys in Myanmar when I buy my chocolate milkshake. I told you all about this, you know, when I went up and had invited some of the students up that I taught, the Myanmar pastors. And I said, y'all want a Coke? Because I had like five of them in my refrigerator. And they, they said, "Yeah, can I have a Coke?" I said, "Have you ever had a Coke before?" No. Never had a. Co- You've never had a Coke before? No. How much did this cost? It was smaller too. It's a full Coke. One of those little little things. A dollar U.S. dollar. They held the can like this, (laughs) and they had the biggest smile on their face, like, this is nice, you really love me, that you would give me a Coke that I've never had before. And you figure they make $6 a week. You start understanding it, huh? We in America, we just... It's not God's money. Do you realize... This is... is, I believe... This is Wednesday night service. This is my righteous anger spot. When I see churches spin millions and millions of dollars on a building and there are not gospel pre- missionaries we could be supporting pastors you know we have a pastor up on that board out there for in Honduras his name is Nibeli. he works six days a week all day long and then he comes home he prepares real quick And presents a message every night to his congregation. There's something wrong with this picture. Even our poor are rich here. We are not good stewards. We've gotten our eyes off eternity. We need to be more shrewd. The final application is—it nails it, doesn't it? We must only—we must have only one master. Jesus looks right into our heart and he says, "No servant can serve two masters, for either he hates the one or loves the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other." You cannot serve God and wealth. You know, this just lays it out there, doesn't it? Who is your Lord? Is it money, possessions, or Christ? With an eye on eternity, He must be our Master. Not the things of this world. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and kindness showed towards us. Father, help us to evaluate our hearts where we are not being good stewards in light of eternity. By your grace, Lord, call us and equip us and encourage us to use every penny we have for your glory and your honor and your praise and the gospel be proclaimed father we thank you for your grace and kindness towards us today and showing us through your word that you want us to look to the future and act according to accordingly help us to keep our eyes on eternal perspective and help us to act appropriately we pray this in jesus name amen